the book of Hebrews, obviously written to Hebrews, the race of the Hebrews, is showing us that Christ is superior, that he is supreme. In other words, he is the best. Uh, we've, we've seen how he is the best in various ways, how he is superior over Moses and the, the angels, and that he is, is God's likeness, his representative to us. And we've had some warning passages we've looked at here that are very serious and we need to be taken to heart, and we need to take them to heart. And so today we're, we're kind of, it's going to continue in this warning phase here for us, but again, we're, we're going to be exhorted to see that Christ is superior. Let me just give you the theme to start us off here as we look at the, before we read the passage here together. I've just kind of made it personal more so than I normally do as we think about this theme that my faith in Jesus determines my eternal destiny. Your faith in Jesus determines your eternal destiny. See, it's not enough to just have faith. What is the object of your faith? That determines your eternal destiny. In Hebrews, look, look what it says here, chapter 4, verse 1. Hebrews 4, verse 1. These are the words of the living God. He says, therefore, while the promise of entering His rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. But we who have believed enter that rest, as he said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, They shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day. Today, saying, through David so long afterward, in the words already quoted, Today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give. So what do we do with this text for us today? Powerful passage, is it not? God wants you to do something with it, and that's why we have propositions. So here, 
Here it is. Here's the proposition for us to consider today from this text. That God wants you to fear unbelief. That's the negative. Positive is. But then He wants you to believe in His Word. He wants you to believe His Word. So, we have two main points coming from our text today. First of all, we're going to see the promise of God. And then we're going to see the power of God. So first of all, let's look at the promise of God. Oh, beautiful. Don't you love the promises of God? Here's a beautiful one. We see in the promise of God that He has prepared rest for His people. You look at verse 1, it says, Therefore, while the promise... There is a promise for God's people. There's this the promise of entering... His rest. God's rest. And notice, it still stands. You say, well, what is this rest? What is God's rest that we're talking about here? Well, I like this definition from the MacArthur Study Bible footnote. It says, for believers, God's rest includes several things. It includes peace, confidence of our salvation, reliance upon God's strength, and then there's also the, the one we usually think of as we think of God's rest. It is the assurance of a future heavenly home. And so when you think of rest, it encompasses all those things. There's a present aspect to God's rest that comes to God's people. And it carries on through a believer's life into the future when that ultimate final assurance of your future home arrives. But it, it is possible, though, for somebody to not believe God's promise, sadly. Even though God says, I give you a promise, there are people and many who sadly do not believe God's promise. So God warns us here. And He says that we, number two, should fear unbelief. We should fear unbelief. And by the way, this this is a great exhortation for the perseverance of the saints. If you look at the beginning of chapter 4 here in Hebrews, the writer's drawing a conclusion from a warning that was given at the end of chapter 3. And you'll notice chapter 4, verse 1 starts with the word, therefore. Whenever you see a therefore, you should ask why, what is it therefore? Well, it's pointing you back to chapter 3, verse 19. End of chapter 3 there. And so it's a sign, if you will, drawing a conclusion from what you just saw in verse 19 there, which says this, so we see that they, the Israel, were unable to enter, it's the promised land. Why were they not allowed to enter into the promised land? It's because of unbelief. So this here, the therefore's, a sign saying, hey, look back to this example, a bad one. And what is the conclusion from the fact that Israel was not able to enter God's rest because of unbelief? The author's conclusion is that we should fear. Notice what verse 1 says, chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, while the promise of entering His rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you 
should seem to have failed to reach it. So that's the conclusion. We should fear. But what, fear what? Fear what? Notice it says, fear lest anyone should seem to come short of God's rest. The idea is they're coming short of this, this haven, this restful haven of salvation. That is, fear so that you, you won't even appear to have missed heaven. Because if you keep going on in this way, you will miss it. If you do not persevere, you will miss it. And that's the outcome of fearing. But what is it that we fear? What is it that we actually fear? Well, the connection with verse 19 tells us the thing we're to fear is unbelief. Because chapter 4, 1 says, let us fear. Fear what? Fear the unbelief of chapter 3, verse 19. Therefore, fear that unbelief, he says, because that's going to keep you from entering into God's rest. That's going to keep you from God's haven of salvation. It's going to keep you out of God's heaven. So fear unbelief. And you can see this confirmed, by the way, if, if you keep reading on in the context into verse 2. You notice verse 2 begin, begins with the word for. The word for in verse 2 just means he's given a reason for verse 1. Verse 1 says, fear. Let us fear. Fear unbelief. What's the reason for why we should fear? Well, that's verse 2. It says, for good news came to us just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them. Because they were not united by faith with those who listened. So the author here, he's continuing to compare Israel in, in that wilderness situation to the situation of, of believers at this time. Believers in our day, for that fact. They had good news preached to them, just as we've had good news preached to us. Now, a lot of people look at the Old Testament and say, whoa, I mean, uh, the Old Testament, you know, God, he's a God of wrath. He's not a God of of grace and good news and so forth. So so what kind of good news was preached to Israel in the, in the wilderness? Well, read Exodus chapter 34. Okay? You will see grace all over the Old Testament. I'll just give you one example. Exodus 34 verse 6 says that the Lord proclaimed. Here's what he says about himself. He says, The Lord, the Lord God compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. Exodus 34, verse 7. Who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Did anybody hear grace, love, <laughs> and other things there? I did. And that's in the Old Testament. That's good news. This is the good news of love and mercy and forgiveness of sin. It was the good news that God would bring them into the promised land. He promised them that. He would, and then He would be with them if they would only trust Him. And so the writer here says that Israel had heard that good news. They had heard the gospel just like his readers here. And so there's this 
familiar situation going on, a comparison, if you will, a a comparison between Israel and the readers of this letter. And here's the point, my friends. This good news was not believed by Israel, and so they did not enter into God's rest. Why? Simply because they did not believe. They didn't didn't believe in God. They doubted God. They distrusted God. They didn't have faith in God's promise when God said, hey, I'm going to give you a better future than you had in Egypt. And so what did they do? They gave up on God. They wanted the old life. They they thought about their vegetables and their food and their homes and their slavery in Egypt. (laughs) And what was the result of that unbelief? Verse 2 says that the promise did not profit them. It wasn't that God's promise was wrong. There's a problem with God Himself, but the promise didn't profit them. In other words, it was of no value to them. It didn't save them because of chapter 3, 19, which says they did not, it, it, they did not enter God's rest. And so we learn from, from history in the Old Testament, they fell in the wilderness. You remember everybody who was over 20 years old died in the wilderness for like the next 39 years. And God swore in His wrath they would never enter His rest. And and that is a picture, my friend, of how someone who can even profess Christ can miss heaven. It's a picture of missing heaven. So the point of verse 2 is exactly the same as the point of chapter 3, verse 19. It's a reason for why we need to fear unbelief. We all need to fear unbelief. Because verse 19 says, they were not able to enter because of unbelief. And then you jump into chapter 4, and it just starts off with therefore. Fear unbelief. Why? That's verse 2. Because the good news to Israel, uh, they had the good news, they didn't believe it, They weren't united to faith, and so it didn't profit them anything, and they perished in the wilderness. So here's the main point. Here's the main point, my friends. Fear this happening to you. Fear hearing the promises of God and not actually believing in God and not trusting in His promises. Because if we do, then the same thing's going to happen to us as it happened to Israel where we will not enter into God's rest. We will not enter into God's heaven if we don't believe His promise, if we don't trust in His promises. Uh, at this point, you might be sick of hearing about fear, and you might be wondering, actually, asking the question, well, do you mean that the I- ideal Christian life is somehow lived in constant fear of being lost? Is that what you mean? No. Short answer is no, because if you look at chapter 2, verse 15, notice this is all in the same context. Chapter 2, verse 15, it says, talking about Christ dying and that Christ delivered all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So may I remind you, 
Christ's death delivers us from this fear. We're no no longer subject to the slavery all of our lives. And what's the point? You say, well, Christ died to deliver us from slavish fear. Christ wants a fearless people. You say, what does this look like? Some of you might be confused because the text says fear, but yet Christ has delivered us from fear. I'm confused, right? Well, let me give you an illustration. It might help. Uh, I'm curious. When, when you were little, did your parents ever tell you, don't run out into the street? That's a wise thing to tell the little children who kind of oblivious to fast cars and how fast they drive up and down streets and what a car can do to a little child. They can destroy a little child quickly and snuff out their life. And so that was certainly the case for me when I was young. And so I developed a healthy fear of running into the street. Don't run into the street. It's dangerous in the street. (laughs) You can be killed by a car. Not that I really understood what that was like, but I understood, at least to a certain extent, what my parents were saying. And so I developed a fear of running into the street. But did that mean that I couldn't have fun playing in my backyard? No, I did, in fact. I had great fun playing in my backyard. I felt this freedom out there. I didn't I didn't experience the same kind of fear as when I went next to the and, and the temptation of going into the streets. Most of the time, I never even thought about how fearful the street was when I'm in my backyard. And only when I got near that street, maybe usually it was because the ball I was playing with, that's what usually happens, right? Ball goes out into the street, kid runs after it, not paying attention, car hits the kid, right? And so I'm sure my parents were concerned about that. And, and, you know, maybe somebody would be tempted to run into the street when you weren't supposed to. But only then did you you feel that the fear of the street. See, the rest of the time, the fear keeps little boys and girls in the place where they don't need to feel any fear. And that's the way it is with this fear of unbelief that Hebrews is talking about. See, you don't live in this constant bad feeling all the time. And you're not supposed to. You only experience the bad feeling when there's a temptation for you and and me to distrust God's promises. Then you should feel that that fear. And only then you use the, the, the bad feeling of fear to hopefully keep you in a safe place, it ought to send you back into the safe yard of God's goodness. So the normal Christian life is aware of the fearful danger of unbelief, but it should never cause you to to live a life that is paralyzed in that fear. We're to live in faith. And when we get there, that's what Hebrews 11 is about. Hebrews 11 Hebrews 11 tells us about living in faith. That's how we're to live. So, yes, we need to fear unbelief, but the text goes on to tell us that we who believe can enter God's rest. This is this beautiful promise. You can enter God's rest, but there's only one way. There's only one way. 
Did you notice the text in verse 2 and 3 tells us it's, it's because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. So it is belief, it is faith, it is trust. And by the way, no one should rule themselves out here. You say, well, why is that? Because there's one door to the safe, happy rest of God. It is, as it is described here, the door of belief, a door of faith. And so anybody who puts faith in God's promises, which, by the way, was bought by Jesus through His precious blood, and it it is diligent, it is diligent for us to not throw that faith away. And so on behalf of God, I call you to put your trust, your faith, in the promise of God's rest. Continually come to Him and put your trust in the promise of God's rest. Number four, please take note that there was a place of rest for God's people. It's always been this way. The faith in Christ is what always saves people. It's always been this way. And in fact, it goes all the way back to Genesis. And so we're going to see lots of examples coming from the Old Testament here. And we're going to be reminded of the Hebrew history here. And so there's a place of rest for God's people. And so all the way from verses 3 to 10, It's really written to support the main point we've just talked about. We've already looked at it there in verse 1. We are to be diligent to enter God's rest and then fear lest we fail to enter it because of unbelief. And so the way verses 3 through 10 support this point here is by, by pointing to Old Testament history where we see there's a rest to enter into. In other words, God has a plan for His people. We're to join him in this restfulness of heaven. Look to the Old Testament. What can we learn from the Old Testament? God has burdens that are to be lifted. Jesus talked about those burdens being lifted in Matthew 11 when he said he invites all to come to him. All who labor and are heavy laden, he says, and I will give you rest. Verses 3 to 10 here are written to show this promise is really there even in the Old Testament. Jesus wasn't preaching anything new. So the text is a little complicated. You'll see some quotations from the Old Testament in your text there. And so I'm just going to try to simplify this and give you a brief outline. What the writer here does basically is this. He's going to focus on five different points in history. And the point of this is to show how God is, is, is continually opening this place of rest for believing people, for people who put their faith in Him and His promises. And it's interesting, he starts in Genesis chapter 2. He starts right at creation here. Did, did you notice what verse 3 says? Sorry, verse 4. Well, back up to verse 3, because... It says, for we who have believed enter that rest, as he said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. Notice verse 4. For he 
has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. That's Genesis. <laughs> and here's what God said in Genesis 2. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. He's quoting Genesis chapter 2. So he starts at creation here. Good place to start. And so the writer here sees in this a sovereign God who has a place of rest where his people can enjoy fellowship with him. Now he's going to call it later on, he calls it a Sabbath rest. Because the Bible says on the seventh day God rested. In reality, that rest lasts forever. It was, that's the way it's meant to ultimately be. There's ultimately a time coming when we're set free from our sin and the curse, and we will, this rest, this peace, this joy will go on and on and on. We call it eternal life. And so as he, gives this brief outline for us, pointing about the rest for believing people. He starts at creation. But then he goes on, number two, and he focuses on this period when Israel was wandering in the wilderness. Sadly, they rebelled against God. And so, verse 5, he actually quotes again from Psalm 95. Psalm 95 talks about that period of wandering in the wilderness. God's people there had rejected Him, rebelled against Him, and did not believe His promises. And so, verse 5, it's interesting. It quotes 90, Psalm 95, which says, They shall not enter My rest. So the promised land here is a picture of God's ultimate rest. And their unbelieving rebellion excluded Him from that land, which raises the question for us, does there remain a Sabbath rest for the people of God? Does there remain an ultimate, eternal rest for the people of God? Because the promised land wasn't it. Eventually they went in, but it was not an eternal, joyous, happy, peaceful, restful place for all eternity. It was never meant to be. And so the, then the shift here focuses to a third time period. You notice the text talks about the time of Joshua. He took his people into the promised land. God used Joshua and, and the Israel army to eventually conquer these people whom they thought they could never conquer. And so is that the ultimate rest that God had in mind for his people? No. <laughs> verse 8 tells us no. Notice what verse 8 says. For if Joshua had given them rest, which he didn't, God would not have spoken of another day later on. It's interesting, the word Joshua and Jesus are the same. Joshua <laughs> was not superior to Christ. Joshua was not superior to Jesus. Jesus is superior to Joshua. And Joshua was pointing to the one who would give them ultimate peace and rest in a true land that would go on and on forever and ever. And so even though Joshua gave some relief to the people of God, there was not the final rest that God had planned for them. That ultimate rest is what we call the millennium, when the true king of Israel will reign and rule from Jerusalem 
for 1,000 years. But how do we know all this, though? Because notice it, it's speaking of another day. It's speaking of another rest that would come many years later. And so we see in verses 8 through 10 that today it says there still is a resting place. There is the hope, the promise of God has not died. It is alive and well that today there is still this resting place. And so that brings us to a fourth time period the writer's focusing on, which the, the time that David is writing about in Psalm 95. Verse 7 says that, that again, it's fixing this certain day. Today it says, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. In other words, long after this time of Joshua, and the conquest of the promised land. You remember David ends up becoming king of Israel, and there's the, there's this golden period of Israel's history. Long, long after that, David's writing here in Psalm 95. And Hebrews reminds us of that time period. And David says that God is still holding out to His people an offer of salvation rest. And he says, don't harden your hearts. Don't. You don't, you're going to enjoy God's rest. And so from this, the writer's drawing a conclusion about God's Sabbath rest, this rest of salvation, and he ends with a fifth period of history here. And basically, I don't know how else to describe it than the text does itself. This is today. This is today. This is for you, for me. And in verse 9, he just says today. And so there there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. And it is today. Today this rest is still open. And that's the foundation of God's message to you and to me today. There, There is a rest that is open today. God offers rest. He has not shut the door. The time is not past. You haven't missed your opportunity. The door is open and God says the time is now. Now, believe me, trust me. And so God says in verse 11 that we must strive to enter His rest. That's the point of verse 11. The sixth point that needs to be made here about the promise of God is that we must strive to enter God's rest. Now, it doesn't mean you can save yourself. Because God's the one who does the work of faith in you anyway. And He gets all the glory for that. But as we look at Israel's history, we see Israel fell from God because of unbelief. They did not strive to enter into God's rest. And so the same thing, as we compare this to us, can happen to anybody, even who someone who professes to be a Christian. And so in order to keep that from happening to you, the author here says, let us strive to enter into God's heaven. Strive. That's that's your responsibility. That's your part. And so, my friend, do you see the great lesson here? The Christian life is a, a life of day by day, hour by hour, a continual trust in the promises of God. Why? Because He's the one who's, who can help you. He's the only one who can help you and guide you and take care of you, and who forgives you and brings you into a glorious future. You'll never get there without. And so it's that hour-by-hour trust in God's promises then 
uh, we need to understand it's not an automatic thing. It doesn't just happen. It doesn't just happen. It's not automatic. It's the result of a daily striving. It's the result of a proper fear. And it's hard. It's hard. In fact, it's supernatural. It's impossible. And so how are we going to do this? And this is where the next section here of Hebrews comes in. The only way to avoid unbelief and for you and for me and anyone to believe in Jesus is through the power of God. It's the only way. And so the text reminds us here of the power of God in verses 12 and 13. Let's look at the power of God here because we see, first of all, that it is the spoken and written Word of God that we're talking about here. It is the same Word of God who spoke and said, let there be light, and there was light. And the same Word of God that said, let there be stars and planets, and there was. And the same God who said, let there be animals, and there, the animals came into being. It is the spoken and written Word of God we see in verse 12. It says, for the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. So we see, my friends, that God's message here, I want you to note, it diagnoses the needs of your heart. <laughs> That's how powerful it is. Unlike your GP or any doctor cannot see inside you, they can often make guesses of what's wrong with you, and often they get it wrong. Because they can't really see inside you, even down to the cellular level, but God's Word sees everything and is able, therefore, to diagnose, diagnose the needs of our heart and then actually point out the solution that we need. And that's what this text is reminding us of. We will never believe in Jesus that He is really superior and supreme and more than enough for our spiritual needs without the power of God enabling us to do so. And so... What is this talking about? It's talking about the spoken and written Word of God, but what does it do? Notice just how powerful it is, because the text tells us that God's Word is living and active and sharp. Three points there. And I want you to take note that, that God's Word is like God Himself. It's like God Himself. And so because God is living, then His Word is living. The idea there is His Word is productive. It's causing things to happen in us. Hopefully you feel this. You know this to be reality in your life. You Hopefully you feel the conviction when you're disobedient and God uses warnings from His Word to convict us of our, of our sin and our disobedience. And then God's Word comforts us with His promises. God's Word does all that because it is living but God's Word's also active, kind of similar to living. But in other words, it's, God's Word is not just something that you passively hear and then you ignore it. It's active. It actively works in our lives. God's Word changes us, sends us into action for God. But God's Word is also sharp. Sharper than a sword. It can do what a sword could never do. Because it's interesting, the text here 
and verse 12, talks about how it's able to pierce to the division of soul and of spirit even. Well, how do you divide between soul and spirit? I mean, that's 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 like indivisible. That's like that's almost like saying the same thing. I'm going to divide the same thing, and that's the point here. God's word is so sharp; it is capable of penetrating what is impenetrable and dividing what is indivisible. That's how powerful God's word is. And you just got to look at this and say, "Wow, God's word's powerful," because God is powerful. And then it goes on to even say that it even exposes all our thoughts and our desires. The, the very things that you and I sometimes think we have hidden, the secret things, the hidden things that nobody else knows. Yeah, that's true. Nobody else does, but God does. And, and so God's Word is so powerful, it brings all those hidden secret things out for inspection. God's Word's able to expose those things. And you say, well, this doesn't apply to me. I mean, I'm the exception to the rule. I mean, there, there's, there's no... Nah, that, that's not me. That doesn't apply to me. Really? Look at verse 13. Lest you somehow think you're the exception to the rule, God says in verse 13 that no creature is hidden from His sight. But all are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we must give account. And so here's the point, my friends. You and I can't hide from God. He is so powerful, there is nowhere that is hidden from His sight. And so your guilt is exposed. He knows who you are on the inner being. He knows everything about you. He made you, after all. And so you can't escape And so this text ends with a very solemn thought that hopefully causes us to ask an important question. Who can represent guilty sinners before this kind of a God who sees everything? Is is that what you're thinking? You should be at this point. Well, my friend, that's kind of leaving us with some bad news, if you will. But I'll just remind you, the next time this text is preached, there's some good news for you, my friend. Because in the very next section, it reminds us of Jesus, the great high priest. The one who understands you and understands God and is able to stand before both. (laughs) He can deal with the sinner. And so, because of the high priestly work of Christ for sinners, there's hope. And so we praise God for the good news of Jesus Christ. The one who lived the perfect life for you, which you never did, and died in your place, perfect sacrifice, which you could never do. He was buried, but he rose again on the third day. He conquered sin and Satan and death. And then, as if that wasn't enough, his ministry continues on because the Bible says he ascended into heaven showing that God the Father accepted his sacrifice on our behalf. And so He is in heaven today praying for you. He is praying for you that your faith would not fail. One day, all those who believe in Him can look forward to the day of His return when His people, His real people, will live with Him forever. My friend, are you looking forward to that day? Where's your faith? Where is your faith today? What is the object of your faith? 
my friends, do not lose sight of the warning here. Fear unbelief, but believe His Word. So, the negative is fear unbelief. The positive is believe God's Word. Yes, there is something to fear. You must fear God. Because unbelief would would separate you for all eternity from God Himself. So my friend, you must believe His Word. That is your only hope. He has given us a promise that you can enter into His rest, into His heaven. And when you do, when your faith is put in Jesus Christ alone, then you now receive this wonderful hope and, and, and a peace and a joy that comes even now, even though we, we, we look forward to the day of a glorious future when you will have a home in heaven with Him. So do you believe John 14 when Jesus said, in my Father's house are many mansions, rooms, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. I will receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. That's what Jesus is doing. That's a promise. And He never lies. He always keeps His promises. May we believe His promises. May we believe His warnings and take heed. May God enable us to do so. And Jesus, we were going to pray. Let's pray. So in His name we pray today. Heavenly Father, we're thankful for the warning and for the promise. Thank You for the power we've seen here through Your Word. The same power that brought the universe into existence is the same power that brings life into dead people. So we ask that You would cause us to believe Your promise and to fear unbelief. May we continually fear unbelief, but may we be like a child in the sense, yeah, we, we, we fear we fear going out into the streets and being killed. But may we understand that is not a place that we want to live with in, in that fear all of our life. So may we stay out of the streets. But may we live in the peaceful backyard of Your goodness. Open our eyes that we would see wonderful things from Your Word and then believe them and act upon them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.